do you really think that they're going to follow it? I mean, seems to me in the competitive world of tech and AI, especially right now, a six-month hiatus is six months where your R&D people can quietly get you know get a couple of steps ahead of the competition. Maybe, and there are a couple of things that stick out that that really just don't make sense to a six-month pause. Six months, as you well know, is a long time in the tech world, especially with a startup unicorn building hot thing right now. This isn't taking six months of, hey, let's slow down social media or something. I mean, something established. This is brand new. It's red hot right now. It's getting the most funding from VCs, uh, and it's really hiring a lot of people. So if you stop for six months, what about all those jobs? If you just got a job and your job is to advance the world of AI, what do you do? But also, do you sit back and let AI companies in other countries get a six-month lead? That seems surprising. Yeah, so I, I would be surprised if, I mean, some thoughtfulness, some some concern about the direction of this industry makes sense. A six-month pause, like you, I just don't see how it would happen. So did you sense that concern at the meeting? A I little bit. I mean, it's one thing to have Waz talk about it, but Waz hasn't been building computers or even writing software for 30 years. Elon, yeah, he's kind of one foot in this stuff. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, March 31st installment of the Silicon Insider, the only uncensored look at life and business in the South in the Silicon Valley. My name is Mike Malone, and I'm here with special contributor Scott Budman, technology reporter for NBC Bay Area. Our producer is Jordan Henderson. Our East Coast correspondent is Bob Grove. And our host, as always, is the Silicon Valley Business Journal. Okay, Scott, I want to get through the latest, the latest news quickly and focus on the two big stories, I think, of the week, both of which have implications going far into the future. So first, uh, Sam Bankman-Smith Freed, sorry, <laughs> Sam Bankman-Freed, I had it all memorized, and we had weeks past. He sort of receded in my memory. So, <laughs> Sam Bankman-Freed, uh, you know, of FTX, uh, being, you know, indicted by you know, the feds and all that, he pleaded not guilty to five new federal charges of fraud and conspiracy, including one count of conspiring to bribe Chinese government officials. That just that brings together two major news threads into one. Who would have thought that? I mean, this isn't exactly that chubby incel in his parents' basement in Stanford, California, who's just shocked to suddenly be worth billions and then lose it all. Now there's accusations that he was paying bribes to the Chinese government. I mean, this is, it's entered into a whole new phase now. Right. I, I don't think it ever was the person you just described. And part of the problem, because I noticed he pleaded not guilty, part of his problem, and, and there are many problems Sam Bankman-Fried has, is that everyone around him whom he worked with has gone over to the other side and pleaded guilty. Right cooperated with the government. So all of these charges are not exactly coming out of a left field. They have everybody who worked with him day to day. And so the more charges we have, obviously, in some ways, the worse it is. But it also shows, I think, an insider look now, literally, at what was going on at FTX. And it's not going to get any better because 
everybody else is trying to work out some sort of a deal and he's just getting buried. Yeah, to bring up that old phrase about no honor among you know what. Uh, seems to me if you're running a startup and you're going to try to do something a little shifty and you assume that everybody else around you is going to stand up with you and go down with this ship, don't count on it. Right. Um, I mean, and these are largely young people who I think are understandably frightened because they're going to spend some time probably in jail. The question is, do they lose their entire future by spending decades behind bars? And uh, clearly, whatever bond they had was not strong enough. And yeah. so it just looks worse and worse for him. And it's almost, um, and, and again, I, I always plead this when I cover court cases. I, I don't have a law degree or anything like that. I'm curious why he's dragging out these not guilty pleas instead of trying to just take the medicine in one fell swoop because it is pretty clear he's going to spend an awful long time um, away. Take the shot, get it over with. And a reminder, there is, unlike the mob, there is no omerta in town. No. <laughs> okay, uh, second, uh, layoffs, more layoffs. Uh, we kind of saw these coming, I think. Marvell? Technology, they had that bad quarter, that sudden turn uh, recently, and they've laid off a uh, hundred jobs. I mean, it's not major. I think it was just one department. And um, also uh, Roku, which I, I don't know if it's connected with what happened to them with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. I think they got their money back. This must have been in the works. And then this thing got hit, so they had to deal with that PR, and now they're going to cut 200 jobs. Right. You know, a couple of these. Crash. Right. And not so much more available. You look at Roku, and I think one that, that also you could have added was Electronic Arts. They announced about 800 layoffs. And Roku and EA, if you think about it, uh, are, again, both companies that grew a lot during the pandemic because we were home, we were playing video games, we were streaming content on Roku devices. And um, neither one was a, a, a major layoff by a company that, that's really struggling for survival. But I have a feeling it fits into the pattern that we saw in some of the other companies that grew so much during the good times. And now things are leaner and the future is a little more cloudy. And so they're they're shedding jobs before they really get hit hard. I mean, EA is still selling a lot of games. Roku is still streaming a lot of product, but we're not where we used to be. And I think they have to adjust accordingly. Right, and they get rewarded by the market. They did, yes, absolutely. It's not like the markets, oh, they're shocked they're doing layoffs. They must be in trouble. It's like, oh, they're getting rid of the dross. You know, let's raise their valuation. Well, and we're seeing that a lot. And I think, again, it's sort of this year of efficiency. It's what Wall Street wants to see is a leaner, meaner company. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk kicked it off, but everybody else has followed. And for a lot of those companies, mainly, I would say Meta, the biggest beneficiary, They've seen their stock price really turn around and go go way up. Yeah, well, bad a nasty story today on the front of the Wall Street Journal about uh, Meta's problems in in dealing with the metaverse. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens out of that. Um, I'm st I'll be curious with the next quarter announcements, the financials. They, these guys are all benefiting from these layoffs, but how will their numbers look after they've taken that? that write-off from overhead. Are they going to keep growing? I mean, it, won't that, it'll have to, they have to validate the, the importance of those layoffs by actually doing better in the next couple of quarters. Any indication ahead of time of 
how that is? Um, I, I mean, Salesforce surprised a lot of people. They had layoffs and then they had better than expected earnings. But let's not get it backwards. Often you lay people off and the expectation is you're doing that because the numbers are not going to come in as strong. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a little bit of a tail off in some of these companies, especially if they're cutting some of the people that they hired during the pandemic when money was really rolling in. Uh, and so you're right. Wall Street is going to be watching these numbers very closely, especially for tech. But I don't know that the companies are thinking we're going to over deliver now. I think they were worried that the recent revenue doesn't equal all those people that they hired, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I understand. But people are going to be looking at productivity. That's true. And, and that's true. And, and that is... Show up with improved productivity by laying off that dross, or that wasn't dross. Those people were not superfluous. True. And, and, and I think Salesforce did a good job of that. Uh, Meta is in the process of doing a good job of that, or though, boy, those, those cuts were brutal. But um, Wall Street is really rewarding those companies, saying you are more efficient and we like the bottom line even more now that you're paying fewer people. Wall Street is brutal that way. Yeah, well, we'll see. They better have a better bottom line now. Okay, uh, you were, today, you were in San Francisco. Yesterday, you were in San Francisco covering uh, an AI meeting, a conference? Right, this is a, a conference of, AI CEOs and venture capitalists funding AI startups. And as you can imagine, the talk of the conference was that letter that like a thousand people in tech, uh, including Waz, Elon Musk, many others signed saying, we have to put a six month pause on the advanced AI development, a la GPT. Um, and you can imagine how that went down in a room full of people whose livelihoods now depend on the advancement of AI. Do you, do, you, do you really think that anyone will, even if they all agree upon that letter and that uh, six-month hiatus, do you really think that they're going to follow it? I mean, seems to me in the competitive world of tech and AI especially right now, a six-month hiatus is six months where your R&D people can quietly get, you know, get a couple of steps ahead of the competition. Maybe, and there are a couple of things that stick out that, that really just don't make sense to a six-month pause. Six months, as you well know, is a long time in the tech world, especially with a startup unicorn building hot thing right now. This isn't taking six months of, hey, let's slow down social media or something. I mean, something established. This is brand new. It's red hot right now. It's getting the most funding from VCs, uh, and it's really hiring a lot of people. So if you stop for six months, what about all those jobs? If you just got a job and your job is to advance the world of AI, what do you do? But also, do you sit back and let AI companies in other countries get a six-month lead? That seems surprising. Yeah, so I, I would be surprised if, I mean, some thoughtfulness, some, some concern about the direction of this industry makes sense. A six-month pause, like you, I just don't see how it would happen. So did you sense that concern at the meeting? A I little bit. I mean, it's one thing to have Waz talk about it, but Waz hasn't been building computers or even writing software for 30 years. Elon, yeah, he's kind of one foot in this stuff. Uh, a lot of the people that, you know, sign a letter, they're not AI guys, or they're not really in the thick of it, or they're in the game, not in the game right now. 
Did you sense these are people on the line that you saw today? Are they well, or are they concerned about the letter? They're a little concerned about the letter, and you're right. So I'll take take both parts of what you said. I did talk to some of the people who wrote the letter or who signed the letter. And you're right. For the most part, they're not necessarily in AI. They are saying, hey, we've been experienced in tech for a while, and tech has always been something that grows and grows in exciting ways, but that we feel we can control. This is something growing, growing in exciting ways, but something we don't feel we can control. On the other hand, right, you have these CEOs and the venture capitalists that I spoke to at the conference, and they were saying, Again, let's give a little credit to those who wrote the letter. Yes, this is an exciting area. Yes, we need to monitor it. We need to be careful. We need to keep danger out of it. But they said a six-month pause doesn't make sense. Getting together as a group of both sides of this and discussing it makes sense more than just trying to shut it down because they don't even know how that would work. They're in the process of growing companies right now and raising money hand over fist. You don't just stop that for six months unless you want whatever it is you're working on to go away. Yeah. Uh, do you think, do you see a summit in the future to discuss this stuff, bringing in ethicists and all sorts of people? Do you see the feds getting involved? Um, maybe some That's ethicists, here. maybe some ethicists, maybe a summit. Uh, I think there is common ground. I mean, you talk about Elon Musk. He signed the letter, but come on, he's actively chasing AI with the self-driving Teslas. So yeah. kind of trying to have it both ways. And so at some point, you have to call that out and say, are you going to shut down your self-driving car program? A lot of that is based on machine learning, and I don't think he's going to do that. So I think there is going to be some common ground. As for the feds, come on, the government getting involved in this? Right now, the government has its handful of trying to ban TikTok, which they barely understand, and it's been around for years. I don't know that they're going to be able to catch up with AI fast enough to make a decision on this and be part of no, it. I almost swallowed my tongue when I said that, but... <laughs> You know, they never miss an opportunity. Uh, remember, Abba Yibon, the president of Israel, once said, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And, you know, I can certainly see this is the hot trend of the moment. And some congressmen calling for a hearing so they can, you know, they can make their public statements, you know, and challenge all the players in the business. And they could, but there just aren't that many well-known players. I mean, you bring maybe Sam Altman out there to Capitol Hill, but who else? It's really such a, a growing, nascent, new type of industry. I mean, AI isn't new, but what's going on right now with the visual part, let's say ChatGPT4, um, not to mention just ChatGPT in general, a lot of this stuff is pretty advanced and new, and it's changing the way search is going in some very encouraging ways, but also some uh, potentially dangerous ways. And so to have discussions about this, I think, is not only healthy, but necessary. Uh, but if you shut it down, you're almost kicking the can down the road to a point where... They'll fire it up again. Right, right. Yeah. So my sense is ChatGPT4 was like a Rubicon, and that crossing it started suddenly scared people. Have you tried it? Have you seen its, you know, its parameters of how... How effective is this new app? It's pretty effective. I mean, it's it's impressive in a lot of ways. I mean, it passed the Turing test, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. right. It's getting into law school. It's you know all this stuff. That's it's 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 scarily impressive. I'll give you that. But also by adding the visual part of it, you see that, for instance, it's not good at drawing hands yet. It's not good at sort of how that our heads connect to our shoulders. There are little things you can look at and say. 
that looks a a little bit creepy let's be honest but b inaccurate and it's therefore a sort of a a work in progress and so i'm i'm thinking you know the deep fake world which is really going to put everybody in craziness i mean it, some of these things are are eerily here's the hell because I've, I've been fooled already a few times right and and that is something we need to deal with but there are some telltale signs where it makes mistakes uh just like chat gpt occasionally got things wrong or gets things wrong and so i mean i i don't know what to tell you it's it's impressive it's a little frightening and it all kneels i think it needs to be dealt with not ignored because it's not going to go away okay and um Finally, uh, I wanted to spend a little time about about an individual we both knew. And uh, last week, uh, one of the titans of Silicon Valley, uh, Gordon Moore of Intel and Fairchild and the traitorous eight, died at 94. Now, I dealt with Gordon a lot over the years, all the way back to when I was a cub reporter at the Mercury, writing the big Intel book and all the years in between. What are your thoughts on the legacy of Gordon and of Moore's law. I mean, I, I dealt with him a lot less than you did, and and so I'm not an authority. I, I was blessed to meet him a number of times and even interview him a few times. Um, and it's it was like meeting royalty uh, in, in Silicon Valley. And I say this because, interestingly enough, in a valley that is known, A, for its youth, and B, for its focus on the future, even talking to young people they know Moore's law. And that at first surprised me, but then it didn't. There was a reverence for the history of Gordon Moore and Intel that you really don't see in the tech industry. Uh, the tech industry is known for not being very cognizant of its history. It's always looking forward to the next big thing. But Gordon Moore overcame that. People knew Moore's law. They understood Moore's law. The only thing I can compare this to and this is a weird comparison I'll give you, but you remember the actress Hedy Lamarr? Yeah, sure. The movie star, famous for being a beautiful, glamorous movie star. And when she died in 2000, shortly after, there was this movement of, hey, do people realize that during World War II, she helped invent what became Wi-Fi? And it was just the bizarre story because here's someone who was just this glamorous movie star. It turned out she helped, uh, you know, in, in some complicated way, invent Wi-Fi. And I remember talking to young people in the tech labs and they knew, they somehow knew who she was and what she did. And that surprised me. And then by the time you talk about Moore's Law, you realize some of even the young people who came up just have that reverence and that remembrance and a little bit of scholarship about someone like Gordon Moore, and it always impressed me. Yeah, and you know, Moore's Law forces everybody in the Valley to constantly look forward because everything's going to change in another 18 to 24 months and you better be ready for it. He's, he put us on the treadmill because of Moore's laws. And they, as even he used to, he used to chuckle about Moore's law because he, he said, it's not really a law. One thing about, I mean, one thing about Gordon was he was the most precise human being I've ever met. I mean, there's a lot of singular things about him. He was probably the Valley's greatest scientist. Uh, he was incredibly precise. And to him, if it, be, if it was mathematically correct, then it was true and you pursue it. And 
he used to laugh about Moore's law because it's, he said it's not a mathematical law. It's not a scientific law. It's an agreement by everybody in the semiconductor industry that we're going to move things forward at this pace. And it's along four axes. It's on size, speed, price, and uh, computing power. And he says, somewhere in there, you get Moore's Law. And, and he admitted he was just working on it. He didn't even want to do the article, particularly for Electronics Magazine in 1965. But he's typical for him. He didn't try to bluff it. He didn't just write a high-end thing to get rid of an assignment. He sat down and he thought, well, wait a minute. Something's happening in, in, in chips. I mean, we're doing memory now and it's starting to do this. And, you know, we're getting more and more gates, transistor gates on a chip. Is there a mathematical underpinning? Only he would think of that. So he sat down and tried to graph it and it went like this. And he said, well, that won't work. And then he made the great leap, which is, I'll get some logarithmic paper. And, of course, he had logarithmic paper at his desk. So he pulled it out, and he got the gray curve. And that's and, and the, at the time, remember, there was only like 256 transistors on a chip. And it was, you know, it was an inch by an inch. Well, he could draw that thing out, and he predicted the future for 50 years. And conceivably, it's still predicting the future. It slowed a little bit, but he he galvanized all the brightest people in tech to try to stay on that curve. And 500 years from now, I think people are going to look back and say, "What happened there in Silicon Valley? How did we how did we go from the analog world to this explosion of the digital world to to the point that we have thinking machines in the course of one human lifetime?" And it's going to be, they're going to say, because of Moore's Law. And he, he kind of, I, I, I literally went to one of the very first presentations he made was it, as a 22-year-old reporter, just moving Moore's Law a little farther along the line. I think it was like mid-70s. I was still HP. And uh, I thought, well, that's, that can't last. And here we are, tens of billions of transistors on chips. It's one of the great achievements in human history. And Gordon was at the center of every day of it. Well, and, you know, you're talking about a legacy, and, and you know, that feels like an, an under term, under, underachieving term for Gordon Moore. He leaves so much of a legacy. But two things. We just talked about AI, literal machine learning. That doesn't happen without Moore's Law. That explosion of power you talk about doesn't happen without Gordon Moore. But also, I mean, one of the, the big concerns we have as a planet right now climate change and and the environment. And he was ahead of time on that one. Remember way back when he started the Gordon and Betty Moore Fund, he took $5 billion and said, let's try to help preserve the planet and open space. And obviously that's a huge concern on people's minds right now. So he changes technology to the point where we're still dealing with it every single day. And he points out, this is what we need to worry about when we're not in the office every single day. And it's it's an amazing legacy. Yeah, and, and there's other ones, too, that separated him from everybody else. He was humble all the way through. I mean, there was an intellectual arrogance about him, but as a human being, he was extremely humble. He never really took credit for anything. He's the only guy I've ever met that famous and that rich 
who never had a single enemy. He was absolutely down to earth. And to the to when I say down to earth, I mean, my wife and I sat next to him and then Betty at dinner one night. And we got to talking. And what they wanted to talk about was taking their pickup up into the Sierra and going rock hunting. That down to earth. <laughs> nope, not private jets, not anything. A, a, a pickup truck and, you know, a hammer and going out and collecting rocks. That's a down to earth man. It's a, it's a man whose father was a sheriff in Half Moon Bay, busting revenuers. And Gordon was a guy that, as a teenager, he almost blew up his house experimenting with chemicals. He goes to San Jose State, not an Ivy League school or a great scientific school like MIT, and then transfers, because he's so bright, to Caltech. He's in the trader state under Shockley and manages to survive Shockley. And uh, he was on the B team developing the integrated circuit. People don't realize that, but he was almost there too. He At Fairchild, he's the chief technologist. Working for him is Andy Grove. And he's tight friends with Bob Noyce. They leave and create modern Silicon Valley with the creation of Intel. And not a single enemy. It's mind-boggling. I interviewed him once right after Bob died. And um, probably the most human thing I've ever seen anybody be in the Valley. He got tears in his eyes about losing Bob Noyce. That's an amazing thing. And he also did, I think, the turning point of the modern world, which was, remember, Intel made memory chips. And they, they with the Hoff and Fujin and Major and Seat and Shima, they came up with the integrate with the microprocessor. But the microprocessor didn't sell initially very well. No company wanted anything that complicated. So Intel was still known as the memory company. And there came a everybody at the company knew they had to get into microprocessors, except for Gordon Moore, Andy Grove. And they had a moment in Andy's office where one of them said, we got to decide on which way we're going to go. If I went out of the room and came back in, and we were two different people, what we, would we decide? And even though they were advocates of memory, they said, Let's bet the whole store on microprocessors, the product of the century. We live in the microprocessor world. And that, as much as Moore's Law, that decision, I think, is his, is his memory, his eulogy, his legacy. That makes sense. It's not going to be the same around here without him. Even though we've been living in Hawaii the last few years, he was always there. He came back for Andy's funeral and... Uh, you know he's he's and he's got and the foundation uh, also survives him and it's and it's doing extraordinary things in environmental issues. So, a great man. I, I I don't know about you, but I feel honored to have known him. I do as well. I remember the first time I met him was in the Intel Museum, and it was him and Andy Grove, and they literally just called me up and said, "Hey, they're together. They're doing something. They're dedicating something." They said, you know, they could call in a reporter. 
And it was one of the very few times I was absolutely speechless. I couldn't think of anything to say. And, you know, the PR person is like, hey, do you realize who these two are? And I'm like, that's the problem. <laughs> I do. And and it's intimidating as hell. Um, but but they were absolutely uh, delightful. And and I mean, Andy Grove was his own, you know, personality. But um, but Gordon Moore was always great to talk with because he was full of history, full of stories, but absolutely not full of himself. Yeah. A kind man, too. Okay, that's it for now, folks. You can find us on the Silicon Valley Business Journal homepage, as well as on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Have a great weekend. It's sunny again, temporarily. Bye-bye. <laughs>